Hey, this is The Mouth Off with Kyone Wolf, storytelling from the Mark Twain House. Let's get started with a story from Adam Prizio. He's an attorney, writer, and disability rights advocate who lives in Hartford, Connecticut. This is from the first ever Mouth Off back in February of 2013, and the theme that night was love. Sam was a young man. Uh, he was a, in college at the time of my story. He was getting his bachelor's in studio arts. And Sam was a romantic. And what I mean by that is that Sam had, you know, read a lot of books and watched a lot of movies and listened to a lot of music, but he had never really, you know, interacted with a young lady his own age uh, in any sort of a meaningful way. But having, you know, being a romantic and having, you know, having exposed himself to all of this media, he, he thought a lot about and he had some very definite ideas about what would happen when he did and how it was supposed to go and how it would go. And Sam, when he was in college, had a crush on one of his classmates who was a girl named Emily. And sort of everything about Emily was very interesting to Sam, sort of, and he paid attention to her as she walked by and he noticed where she sat in the cafeteria and how she moved her hands when she talked with her friends, but he had never really spoken with Emily. And he decided that this needed to change and that the way to change this was through the use of what I, what I want to call a grand gesture. And you and I know that the grand gesture has its place in relationships, but that that place is really not not ever as an opening move. <laughs> but Sam knew differently because Sam was a romantic. And so this is what he did. Sam, he went, he went to the studio and he took, and I'm struck by the similarities to your story, Josh, he took a piece of cardstock and he folded it in half and I never saw what he drew and painted on the front of it, but how it was described to me was it was this sort of very vibrant and passionate and impressionistic um, painting with red paint on the cream-colored cardstock and then black ink, and it was a drawing and a painting of his love in, in some fashion. And he, when he was done with it, he took the card to the library, and, you know, let's be honest, he, he cribbed quite a bit from the poetry of John Donne, <laughs> feeling as he did that, that this would adequately um, convey the, you know, the gravity and the, the erudition and the sort of the weight of his feelings. And he put the card in an envelope and he went back to the studio. You know, and I, I, don't, want, I don't want to mock the, the card or the, the painting or the, the verse, but I want, to, I want to talk about what he did next because what he did next is he had, uh, with the help of another art student, he, he took, a, he took a, a, a cast of his, of his face <laughs> and his head <laughs> as though he were going to make a bust. And when the cast had, had set, he took it off and he brought it back to his dorm room and he put it back together and stuck the envelope in, in sort of inside of the space where his head had been. <laughs> and then he, he 
He filled it with red jello. <laughs> and put it in the refrigerator so, so that it could set for a few days. And in a few days, it was Valentine's Day. <laughs> now, it was a small campus, and after a few, you know, a few weeks into the semester, you really did get to know sort of where people were going to be and where, you know, where people had classes and when. And so if you were paying attention, or if you were friends with somebody, or if you were crushing on somebody, you could pretty much predict where they were going to be at a given time. And so Sam knew that Emily left for her 10 o'clock class on Valentine's Day and that she would not be back until after her class ended at 2.45. So that, that was his window of opportunity. And this is what he did. He went to her dorm and he tried the door, but the door was locked. So he went, he found the housekeeper and he sort of explained himself. And the housekeeper was a, a kind-hearted, uh, gentle Midwestern woman, and she took pity on this this stammering young man with the box under his arm, and she let him into the room. And it, she never, because she was a gentle and kind-hearted Midwestern woman, it never occurred to her, you know, he he could have a head in that <laughs> box. That box is big enough to hold a head. If, if she had thought that, like, it might have gone completely differently. But she didn't. And so this is the story that we have. When he, so he's in the room, and he clears a space off of Emily's desk. <laughs> and he opens the box. And Sam is a serious artist, and he's thought this through. For some bizarre value of having thought this through, he's thought this through. Because he pulls out first um, a... a a plinth, which is sort of like a wooden like platform that the bust will sit on, and he sets it down. and And it, the plinth, it's a, it's wooden, and it has sort of a rod sticking up out of the middle of it because the head might roll, and you and you don't want that. <laughs> and so he sets this down on the desk, and then he 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 pulls the Jello head out of the box, and he kind of sets it down onto the rod and and then he pulls from the box a single rose <laughs> and he pushes the stem of the rose between the lips <laughs> of the bust <laughs> and the jello kind of breaks and closes again around the stem <laughs> and Sam looks at this his his work his his gesture and he knows that there's no way she can possibly misinterpret this. This is, <laughs> this is what he, this is, he has accomplished what he's set out to do. So he, so he leaves and he locks the door behind him. Now, it was a, it was a cold Michigan winter which meant that the heaters, the, the furnaces in the dorms <laughs> 
were going double time and the heaters were all opened up all of the way. And so when Emily returned to her dorm room that, that afternoon, the jello had begun to melt. And what she saw on her desk was sort of a pool of sticky red liquid with a rose in it. And then uh, what was still recognizably a, a human head. <laughs> Only the smile had sort of opened up and turned into this grimace. And the eyes had like sagged horribly because the, 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 the two halves of the cranium, you understand, had split. And there was a card <laughs> sticking, sticking up in the middle of them. And so Emily backed quickly out of her room. <laughs> and how she described it to the police was... <laughs> she, <laughs> she said, there's an, the head of an axe murder victim. in my room. Please help me. <laughs> and after it was all sorted out, she never spoke with Sam. And they did not fall in love. Thank you. Thanks to the amazing Adam Prizio. Next, we've got Lucy Ferris. She told her story in April of 2014, and the theme was Punching the Clock, Stories About Work. I spent most of my senior year of college writing letters to a guy named John Martin who ran Black Sparrow Press, which as far as I knew was the only literary publisher in Los Angeles, which was where I was living at the time. And John Martin would write me back saying he had no positions open at present until finally I took a job at a pastry shop in Beverly Hills where I had to pay almost as much to park my car as they were paying me. And so I wrote John Martin and said I was going to have to go to New York and seek my fortune there. And he wrote back, and said he might have a position open after all. He had two guys working for him, and they spent the whole day arguing whether the Beatles or the Rolling Stones were the greatest rock band of all time. And he fired both of them, and he hired me. <laughs> John Martin ran Black Sparrow out of a gazebo next to the swimming pool behind his house, and he installed me in a little L of the gazebo where I thought I would be editing. But I didn't do much editing. I did mostly bookkeeping and invoice typing. This was before computers and before Xerox machines, and I typed invoices to all the bookstores that then existed all across our great land. We had a fabulous list of authors. We reprinted people from the 20s, like Theodore Dreiser and Wyndham Lewis. We had beat poets like Robert Creeley and Ed Dorn, surrealists like Gerard Malanga, feminist poets like Diane Wachowski, Holocaust poets like Charles Reznikoff and Carl Rakosi, the early short stories of Joyce Carol Oates, and that great Los Angeles street poet Charles Bukowski, who most of you know because of Barfly. But even then, he was our biggest seller, and I would type Bukowski, Bukowski, Bukowski until it flew in one gesture from my fingers and I said I could type Bukowski like the wind. John said we were so busy that there was no time at all for me to take a normal lunch break. 
but if I liked, I could change my clothes in the basement underneath his house and take a little dip in the pool, and while I was drawing off on my own time, I could proofread the copy for the book catalog in the, one of the lounge chairs next to the pool. The rest of the time, after I finished rejecting the unsolicited manuscripts, choosing one of the three rejection slips that we sent to the authors who wanted us to publish them, I typed invoices. And every now and then, I would be massaging my hand after having typed Bukowski one too many times, and I would look up at the wall to my left, a wall that John couldn't see, and on it was a charcoal by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Ferlinghetti was a poet who had founded City Lights Books and City Lights uh, Publishers in San Francisco, and now I saw he was also an artist. And the, far, the charcoal was of a woman in, in profile, leaning back on her hand with her legs straight out in front of her, and her face turned away from the viewer. And farther down around her shins was an oversized face of a young man with his eyes shut. And I couldn't decide if he was dreaming her or she was dreaming him. But we weren't alone all the time in the gazebo. People would come visit. Bukowski came and visited. He'd bring his cigars and a couple of six-packs, and he'd lean back and complain about his girlfriends and do finger paintings. He did a finger painting of me. He gave me a red mini skirt and high heels and gold stockings and big Texas hair. And I said, Chuck, it doesn't look anything like me. And he said the same thing that Picasso apparently said to Gertrude Stein, it will one day, my dear, it will. <laughs> John Martin didn't drink with Bukowski. He didn't drink at all. He was a Christian scientist, balding with a kind of pot belly. And he'd sit and have his lunch of dried fruits and dried nuts and little squares of cheese that his wife had prepared for him and spent most of his day on the phone dealing lolly crystal and oriental rugs and first editions and the occasional rare archive that he would sell to a library somewhere, and that was how he kept Black Sparrow flying. He had a high, squeaky voice, especially when he got excited or angry, like the time when I had gone back down to the basement to change after my swim and found a pipe had burst and hot water was spewing all over a rare archive. So I reached into the boiling steam, and I pulled out a box, and I tore out of the basement calling, John, John, the Reznikov archive. And he burst out of the gazebo and saw me all splotched from the hot water, and he said, what have you done? And I said, I'm saving it. Well, after I'd worked for John for about a year or so, he called late one night and said there was something he had to discuss that was terribly, terribly important, and it couldn't possibly wait till morning. Could he come by? And I said, sure, and I changed back into my office clothes, and he came by in his Jaguar and picked me up and drove off to a quiet street and pulled over at the curb. And he said that he really wanted Black Sparrow to fly. He thought that Black Sparrow could soar like an eagle now that he had hired me, and I could go out around the country and over to Europe and find the great writers of our time, and I could go to booksellers' conventions, and I could lecture at colleges and universities, and it would be like Paris in the 20s all over again, except Southern California in the 70s. But there was a problem. He'd lost focus 
He couldn't get any work done because he decided that he was in love with me. And only if I would sleep with him could Black Sparrow soar like an eagle. <laughs> and if I would not sleep with him, it would plummet to the ground. And I couldn't work there anymore. He gave me a little while to think about it. I thought about it. I didn't want to quit. It was the only job I wanted for my whole life. It never occurred to me to sue him. Nobody had ever heard of sexual harassment. I, I thought it was my fault because I'd gone swimming in the pool. And then I thought, well, if I'd had a boyfriend, he would never have made a proposition like that. So I went out as quickly as possible. There was a workshop on ethnic poetry being given, and I went to the workshop on ethnic poetry, and there was this tall, good-looking guy. He looked kind of like the Marlboro man. He turned out later on to be paranoid schizophrenic, but it, it didn't matter for the moment he would do. And I set my cap for him, and I seduced him as quickly as I possibly could, and I made him my boyfriend. And I went in the next week, and I told John, in mostly honesty, that I was terribly sorry, but I'd found that I could not sleep with him because I seemed to have acquired a boyfriend. <laughs> I thought this would solve the problem. John continued to call me late at night. However, now he called me to tell me that he had gone over the invoices and that I had typed Bukowski instead of Bukowski or Rakowski instead of Rakosi and that his 16-year-old daughter could do better bookkeeping than I could and I was an idiot and he should fire me. And this went on and on for a few months until I developed colitis and I finally quit the job. And then a funny thing happened after I quit. John started giving me editing work. I got to correct Charles Bukowski's spelling. I got to write the book catalog and get paid for it. I even got to proofread a cache of obscene letters from James Joyce to his wife, Nora, that some scholar had found deep in a library somewhere and that we were going to publish in a special limited edition titled The Darling Little Fuckbird Letters. <laughs> So finally, the schizophrenic Marlboro man and I were moving to San Francisco, and I came in with my final invoice for John, and he asked how much he owed me, and I said he owed me $350, but I said, you know what, I'll take the Ferlinghetti instead. And he said, my Ferlinghetti, are you crazy? Do you have any idea how much that's worth? And I said, no, but I knew he didn't like it because he'd put it on a wall where he couldn't see it. And I was really fond of it, but if it was worth a whole lot, he could just forget it. He could give me the 350 and I'd be on my way. He pulled out his checkbook. He dipped his fountain pen. He held it poised in the air for a moment. Then he put the pen back, got out from around his desk, and pulled the Ferlinghetti off the wall. I have it still. It graces the cover of my book of short stories, Leaving the Neighborhood. It sits on the wall behind my computer. It does absolutely nothing to soften the blow to the hopes of a 22-year-old. But I look at it now and then still, and I still wonder if he is dreaming her.
or she is dreaming him. Thank you. Thanks to Lucy Ferris, writer-in-residence at Trinity College and author of many books, including her latest, A Sister to Honor. She's a regular contributor to the Chronicle of Higher Education's Lingua Franca blog, and you can find all of her work at Lucy Ferris. That's F-E-R-R-I-S-S dot com. As Mark Twain said, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. Tell your story at one of our live shows. Dates, themes, tickets, and swag are at marktwainhouse.org slash mouthoff. Find us on Facebook by searching The Mouth Off. Thanks to the fine, hardworking people at the Mark Twain House and Museum, including Peter Roos, Jennifer LaRue, Sean Kutzko, George Davis, Alana Stolman, and Rebecca Floyd. The Mouth Off is hosted and produced by me, Kyone Wolf. Thanks in part to the people supporting me on Patreon. Patreon is a really cool way to collectively support an artist, and your support adds up. Please consider signing up at patreon.com slash Wolf. And you can check out all the other cool stuff I'm doing at kionewolf.com. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kion Wolf and on Facebook at Kion Wolf Productions. And I am done saying my name. Imagine the stories you'll tell about being a sponsor for the Mouth Off. For rates and how all that works, email mouthoffhartford at gmail.com. And I'll get you hooked up with the fine people at the Mark Twain House. All right, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, whatever happens, make it a good story. Bye. <laughs>